moving up, moving out, moving along. Where are you headed next? I'm Christy Cassidy, your host and the creator of Moving Along, a podcast about travel, relocation, and life transitions. Listen in to real-life stories as we explore moving along and what it takes to make your life a positive new adventure. Welcome to Moving Along. Pat Wetzel is the author of Bump in the Road and host of the podcast by the same name. She explores the obstacles people face in their lives and how we can overcome those bumps in the road, be they minor nits or major problems. Pat herself has faced some major challenges along the way, including a cancer diagnosis and recurrence, divorce, a severe betrayal in the business world, and much more. But she has lessons for us that I think anybody can put to good use. She grew up in northern New Jersey in Upper Saddle River, and like her father, went to the Wharton School. From there, she went to work on Wall Street. Welcome, Pat. Hi, thank you for having me here. It's great to have you. What did travel and moving mean to you as a child? Well, I grew up in one town my whole life, just about my whole life, but my family traveled a great deal. We'd spend a few months a year overseas and things like that. So it gave me an opportunity at a really young age to know that it's a big world out there. There are a lot of different people and different cultures. And for me, it was all fun. I I grew up in a very food-oriented family. So, you know, we were eating our way through Michelin three-star restaurants throughout France. I mean, travel for me is just kind of a magic place. And I think part of the lure of travel is the fact that you are very present. You're in an unknown environment. You're doing something different. And that creates, I think, focus and presence. And that opens the door to all sorts of things. Were you an only child? No, I had a younger sister. You traveled as a family? Yeah, usually. As I got older, I really didn't want to travel with my folks as much. So I started staying home and not going on some of the trips. Oh, interesting. So I always think when I have five siblings, right? And and we didn't travel like you did, right? But it, it always seems to me when there's somebody you can share that experience with, who's not an adult, who's not, you know, your parent, that it makes the experience different. Maybe. I I think that for me, this was my normal. You know what I mean? It wasn't anything extraordinary. It, it may sound extraordinary, you know, in retrospect and from the outside looking in, but for me, that's just the way life was. You know, I, I knew Paris better than I knew New York. Is it still one of your favorite cities? Oh, there's so many great places in the world. I I don't think you can choose one or two or even half a dozen. I think different places bring different qualities, and they're all great. You said somewhere, I always say I have to follow the smell of wafting garlic when I travel. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, if there's garlic being cooked somewhere, you know there's good food. (laughs) It's good food, and there's some kind of experience, right, (laughs) to be had, (laughs) whoever's cooking it. Um, worst ways to plan your itinerary. (laughs) 
Exactly. Exactly. Do you ever do Airbnbs and so that you can cook like the local food from the farmer's market and that kind of thing? These days traveling, I do a lot of Airbnbs, but I don't really look to cook when I'm there. I want to go out and, you know, see what's out there. For mm -hmm. example, up in Washington, I stayed at a beautiful Airbnb on uh, Whidbey Island. That was it. And it was just gorgeous. The sunsets were extraordinary. And not too far away on the coast was an oyster farm. So I'm not going to cook or if I can go to an oyster farm, you must be kidding me. <laughs> that sounds heavenly. I love Whitby Island and I don't know about any oyster farms. Maybe next time. No, it's on the Oregon coast on the mainland, not or was mm. it Washington coast at any rate on the coast. And you go down this winding road with trees everywhere. And you come to a railroad track and you have to cross that. And it's just a working oyster farm. But the oysters are super fresh and you can order whatever you want. And you sit out there in some old picnic tables and just eat oysters to your heart's content. How do you discover places like that? Are you a guidebook kind of person? Are you a word of mouth person? Are you now? Do you just no, like I'm Google everything? You know, it's interesting. In the days before Google, travel was much more of an adventure. You could do some homework, but it was much more experiential. And you didn't know what you were get, getting into. For example, when I took my sailplane cross country, obviously the Badlands are just off whatever it is, Route 70 or whatever in South Dakota. I didn't know that. I wasn't, you know, I, I hadn't planned every piece of the trip. So I pull over. The Badlands are extraordinary. I meet some helicopter pilots. We go flying. You know, things like things that just kind of serendipitously <laughs> happen that you can't plan for. And I actually think travel used to be much more of an adventure before the world found out that you can plot every footstep and buy all your tickets in advance and wait six hours in line. My early travel experiences were much more indigenous, if you will. And I really prefer that type of experience. Me too, <laughs> I have to say. And um, the first time I saw the Badlands, it was because we were in a bar in some biker bar in in Colorado, and we said, where should we go next? We were making our way from L.A. to New York and 6,000 miles, all blue highways. Let's put it yeah. that way. And they told us the way to go up through the Badlands. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I just and and you too just kind of stumbled there it's an incredible place talk about the sailplane whiskey uh, whiskey oscar <laughs> whiskey oscar yes talk about your you don't fly anymore but you did for a long time right for about, yeah, about 10 years. years whiskey oscar was a 15 meter asw20a she was built for uh, carl streetick to fly in the world he came in second and after that, she went to two racing pilots, and then she went to me. The joke was that Whiskey Oscar was being put out to pasture with me. And actually, Whiskey Oscar are my contest letters. I wanted Whiskey Sierra. You register your plane with contest letters for flying. And Whiskey Sierra was taken, so I ended up with Whiskey Oscar. And that's how she came to be named that. But she was an extraordinary plane. She had these long, beautiful white wings with winglets at the end. And the wings were really flexible. I mean, they, they, you could just bend them up around the canopy practically. It was just 
an amazing set of experiences. And Whiskey Oscar and I, well, she knew how to fly. I She taught me to fly. <laughs> we went cross country. We stationed out of Minden, Nevada, which is one of the best places in the world to soar and just had many adventures together. You kind of stumbled into the flying, right? I guess in Calistoga in 1989, you had a divorce on the horizon and there was a sign for glider rides. Yeah. And actually, Calistoga back then was not at all glitzy. It's not, you know, wine country back then was not an, an alcoholic adult Disneyland. It was much more rudimentary. So I'd rented a white Ford convertible, a Mustang convertible. And I'm driving up, uh, you know, through these beautiful roads, vineyards on the side. And I ended up in Calistoga for the night. And the next morning I'm out walking and there is an airstrip in town that intersects the main street <laughs> that goes right through the center of this nice little town. It was so curious. So I went over to see what the story was and they were giving glider rides. So I, I went up for a ride. It was fine. I mean, it was beautiful looking out over all the vineyards up in the hills and everything, but it didn't really knock my socks off or anything. So I continued on my trip, went back east, and I heard about some lawyers that were flying gliders out of a, a private airstrip on weekends. So I invited myself out. I tracked them down, invited myself out, flew for three straight days, and I was hooked. That was it. It was for whatever set of reasons, it just, everything came together for me that weekend. And I learned to fly with a World War II naval aviator, Sam, who was an extraordinary pilot. There's a two-seater training um, plane. I knew I was doing well when Sam was snoring in the back. That's great. <laughs> when your teacher can fall asleep and trust you that much. <laughs> you weren't meditating by that point, right? So you, no. this, but did you consider this like kind of a, a spiritual experience or was oh. it just an exhilaration? A little of each and almost an out of body experience in that you're up soaring all day long and you come down and you land, and then you have to transition to earth life. And I would get in my car and drive on these bumpy, winding roads back home. And I felt like I was still flying. I mean, I couldn't get that sensation of flying out of my system for many, many miles. It was just a un really unexpected side trip in my life that really took over my life for about a decade. What made you stop? My risk parameters were changing. Um, during one three-year period, 25 people died in the soaring community. One gentleman was shot in San Francisco, but all the others were aviation deaths. And the community is not that big. It's a few thousand people worldwide. So you're not more than maybe two degrees removed from anybody. So those deaths kind of hit you hard. And I've been through a number of pretty close calls myself, including an encounter with a thunderstorm that was really not funny. And I just, I think I'd used up all my goodwill and luck in the air. And I realized I was a good pilot, but there were pilots far better than me that had died. And I really got to thinking about, is this what I want to be doing? Flying out several hundred miles in the middle of nowhere, not maybe having the lift to get home gets a little bit old. I, I think that it was just time to move on to some different things. What replaced it for you? Nothing will ever replace flying. I started playing tennis and that was fun, you know, developed a lot of skill there. I mean, I was living right near Tahoe. So I was skiing and hiking and kayaking and doing all sorts of wonderful things. 
I missed flying. Letting go of Whiskey Oscar was very hard for me, but it was just, it was just time. And she found a great home. That's great. That's always nice to know, right? Yeah. <laughs> that it's not like you, she really went out to pasture. Was cancer in 2009, was cancer your first big bump in the road? Oh, no. I had some serious illness as a young person, myasthenia gravis. My divorce was a massive bump in the road for me. Cancer was interesting in that certainly it's a bump in the road, but it also really reframed my life. Through cancer, I started meditating, which has been a game changer. And strangely, I found an enormous amount of joy, just joy in so many simple things in life that had eluded me before that. And I have to say between the meditation and the sense of deep appreciation of so many little things, that was a really positive thing to come out of six years of cancer. Yeah, I would say so. Finding joy, you find it wherever you look. Yeah, I mean, it's something that travels with you. It, it becomes part of your outlook. It's like meditation. Peace becomes part of your outlook and ability to let things go by an ability to choose your reactions or not react. It's a good way to live. I wanted to ask you about the deceit. And this is on the heels of your cancer, and then it returned, right? And you wanted to share what you had learned, right? And you created a platform. You were ready to bring this to yeah. the world. It um, really dealt with long-term illness, because what happens over years of illness is you become very isolated. I mean, people are there for the first month with casseroles and things, but then they get on with their own lives. And this is not unique to cancer. It happens again and again in many venues in life. But it's very hurtful, actually. And you can feel very unsupported. So I, I developed, called an app um, that would address all these needs over long periods of time. I went down to Silicon Valley uh, to see if there could be some interest and in, bringing in some money to really develop this. And I did get some interest, but I needed a beta platform. So I hired a company to do that for me. They never did the platform. They took my intellectual property, registered it with the patent office as their own, and essentially said, sue us. I was dealing with somebody who was on the board of two publicly traded companies. I mean, these were not lightweights or anything. I couldn't afford a lawsuit. The lawsuit, my very expensive lawyers told me that a lawsuit would involve at least three years it would cost in increments of half a million dollars, and there's no guaranteed outcome. So at that point, I had just had it. I mean, I'd just gotten through all six years of cancer treatment, six years. I mean, this was like a lot. <laughs> and I, I had just so had it. And I decided to just put my house up for sale and go hit the road for a while. I didn't know where I was going. I was concerned my cancer was back. There were a lot of indications that it was. Okay. If indeed it was back, I figured I had 18 to 24 months based on past experience. And I was not going to spend it sitting in a hospital with some chemo dripping into my veins, stewing over somebody who totally screwed me over. So it was just time for a new start, wherever that led me. What was your initial reaction when you learned what had happened? How did you find out that they registered it? I, I had had a sick lawyers on them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't return my calls, my emails or anything. One of the better things that ever happened, because it's always better to know early on rather than later, if somebody is not on the up and up. And it opened a door for me to kind of go back to my past, if you will. When I was younger, I thought I would write. 
And when I went traveling, I started a blog called Cancer Road Trip. And I published at least every week. I got into photography. It opened the door that eventually really led to both the podcast and book where I am now. I don't think you're necessarily alone in this, but it just strikes me that one of your first steps in finding a life of greater authenticity, value, and meaning is to pivot your perspective. And that's what it feels like. I hear you finding joy through the six years of the cancer, finding the positive and the completely new outlook with the deceit, we'll call it, from the coders, from the company that you hired. Is that always been your way of seeing the world as like, oh, I can find the optimistic, brighter way of seeing things? Or is this a learned experience through all of your bumps in the road through the experiences? Well, I, I think it's more learned. I think I'm inherently pretty positive. But I think um, a lot of that is learned to some degree. I, I look at it this way. You take an event in your life, Okay. Write about it. Write about it from a perspective of gratitude, of anger, you know, of half a dozen emotions. And you can write a story any way you want to write it. When you start writing your story in several different ways, you realize all those perspectives have some value, but it's just a story. What do you want to take with you? What story do you want to tell? And I think that you have choice in that. And you can certainly be a victim of circumstances, but that's not going to take you anywhere in life. And I think that you have to overcome that and you have to forge ahead and create something new. I'm the sort of person, I take in a lot of information. I love information. And I connect the dots in unusual ways. And for me, that has been one of those creative strengths that has really led me through my life. Do you think that's something people can learn? Good question. I don't know. I I think I'm just kind of that way. I think we all have our strengths and weaknesses. I'm not a detailed person. I'm a strategic person. I mean, that's a strength and a weakness right there. And I think we all have that. And I think you have to find what it is within you that most suits your perspective on life. And I think you also have to ask, why do I have that perspective? And is there something better? Right. Is there something better? I think it's hard for some people to ask that question because sometimes life just feels too overwhelming. And it requires that you get out of your comfort zone, which is not a comfortable thing to do. But the more you practice getting out of your comfort zone, the more comfortable it becomes. And when you're out of your comfort zone, that's where creativity can happen. It's not going to happen when you drive the same way every day, you eat the same food, and you watch the same TV programs. You know, you have to shake up your life a little bit and introduce some new energy to, to find some new realities. You had a great suggestion And one of your five steps about release, rewrite, rebuild, about introducing one new food per week. You (laughs) can keep everything that you love, but just one different one per week, not even per day. Well, that really came came out of my cancer experience because I became intensely interested in what really creates nutrition. I went through a period where I couldn't eat. It wasn't life-threatening per se, but it, w- it took part of the life force out of me. I'm a food person. And so everybody had a count from a nutritional perspective. And that was a very different look at food than I'd ever had before. I think that it was partly a, a source of control, if you will, because you can control what you choose to eat. 
And in an uncontrollable circumstance, that gives you some control. But I had a website at the time, Anti-Cancer Club, which was very well received. And one of the things I suggested was just what you talked about. If you just choose one new food a week, say you take Swiss chard this week, make it twice or three times. If you don't like it, you never have to eat it again. But if you like it, you know, put in your repertoire. And week after week in doing that, several things are going to happen. You're going to find new things. You're going to shake up your life a little bit and open your world. You're going to slowly, without even realizing it, start making healthier choices because the healthy food will naturally push out the food that's not as healthy. And you'll be rewarded for it. You'll start feeling so much better. So I think incremental change in a lot of aspects of life is really the way to go about it. Sometimes cataclysmic change is what we experience and we have to deal with. But in reality, I think we have control over our habits. If you can change your habits just a little bit, day after day, it makes a difference. You know, do that three-mile loop. It's not that far. And all of a sudden, you'll be doing six-mile loops on the weekend. But you can't do it from zero. You have to work at it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You don't talk about Santa Fe too much in your book, but you talked about it in one of the interviews I heard you do. When did you live in Santa Fe and did you do the three-mile loops in Santa Fe? No, I did a uh, three-mile loop here in Prescott over by one of the lakes. It's near where I live. I ended up in Santa Fe when COVID hit, so I was kind of there. Santa Fe is a beautiful town. New Mexico is absolutely gorgeous. And I was very grateful to be there for a period to experience the arts, the opera, and everything else. So you were there for the three years of pretty yeah. much COVID. That's when you started the podcast, right? Yeah. Um, you know, with without travel, I was stranded. So it occurred to me I could travel virtually. And I started the podcast. I didn't know anything about podcasting. I didn't know anything about distribution. I didn't know anything about the equipment. I didn't know if I could get anybody on the podcast. You know, I just kind of dove in and the idea of bump in the road came to me. So it started. And after about a year and a half of doing the podcast, I was absolutely bowled over by the wisdom of my guests. The wisdom in these stories is amazing. And I have this unique perspective. I kind of sit up here at 30,000 feet and I get to hear every single story. So what started to emerge were common themes and traits and practices of the people who navigated really unbelievable bumps. And that's what generated the idea for the first book, Bump in the Road, which is 15 stories. And the next book will be Bump in the Road, Strong Women. And I'm planning to do a series of books, you know, Bump in the Road, Sports, Business, et cetera, over time, because I have so many great stories. And I think that maybe by grouping them in some common themes, that will be beneficial to people. I like the thematic ideas, especially the next one, the strong women. That Everybody sounds... seems to like that. And I, I just think women are remarkable. They they do so many things in life and they have to be so strong on so many different levels. You know, you could say, oh, business, you know, you have to achieve in business, you have to do this, this, and this. But really, I think some of the greatest strengths come from personal situations, situations with kids. And the self-knowledge that comes from all that. And so I, I think that that's going to be a really interesting book. I agree. Childbirth alone, and I've never had kids. It's like, no, <laughs> if you could make it through that, you can do anything. 
You were talking about strong women. What does resilience mean to you? Oh, I think it's just the ability to pick up all the pieces when everything's falling apart and continue moving ahead. And I think that as you do that more and more, you start to discover your own strength. And resilience really is about inner strength. So picking up the pieces, it seems to me like for you, one way to do that is to travel. Yeah, travel is my little escape, my reset. And I realize a lot of people would not choose that, but it, it, it suits me. When you travel, we were talking before about, you called it an indigenous approach to travel, right? I imagine there's sometimes you travel and you kind of plan where you're going. And sometimes you travel and you don't have, you follow the the smell of the wafting garlic, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I think you, you, I like to plan ahead to have a place to sleep. I think that's important. Um, because particularly these days traveling, you can not find a place if you haven't planned for something. So I think that there is some planning that goes into it, but I'm not somebody who wants, I don't like tours. I don't want to fill up my days with that kind of thing. I want to wander and see what I see. And I think partly because I traveled so much as a young person, I don't feel like I have to do everything. I feel like there'll always be another trip, another time. And that works for me. The idea that if I go to Florence, I have to stand at every line that there is to see every possible piece of sculpture, it just does not resonate. You pretty much travel alone still, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I like traveling alone. I mean, it can be fun to travel with people, but when you travel by yourself, you don't have to think about anybody else's likes or dislikes or desires. You can do what you want. Have you ever had an experience while traveling that it might be considered a bump in the road? Uh, actually, I was in a, a sailplane race from Los Angeles to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And the first day out, the first leg was um, from an airfield north of um, L.A. to Las Vegas. So, you know, kind of an interesting flight. No engine or anything, right? And there was a very, there was a cold weather front that had come in. And really, the race should have been postponed because of the weather but for a variety of reasons, it wasn't. And somebody died the first day out. And that was a terrible bump in that it really cast a pall over the rest of the trip. And I was flying with a friend of mine, and we ultimately decided to leave just as we were getting into Texas, I think, and went up to Santa Fe. You know, six hours later, we're sitting out at Geronimo's having margaritas. It was much better than than dealing with the whole pall of death that was hanging over this trip. Wow. It takes courage, though, to leave and in the middle yeah. of something that you've thought you had committed to also. Very much. But the trip started shedding some people because of the way it was being run, because of the decisions that were being made, because of the death. It really was just unraveling in a number of ways. You said that you have relocated cross-country, moved cross-country twice, right? No, it, just once from the East Coast to the West. And ever since then, I've lived in the West Coast, one place or another. The West really does draw you, right? You're attracted to the mountains, to the to the landscape, or is it something beyond that? Well, I think the wide open spaces are incredibly appealing. When I moved out West, I was immersed in soaring. I lived in one of the best places in the world to soar. Like Tahoe's gorgeous. I mean, it's hard to beat that. So I think that for me, I always say I spent the first half of my life on the East Coast and the second half on the West. And I think the outdoors, the sports, the endless sky, 
all those things really appealed to me. Whereas back East, I think things are a lot more regimented. The scales are smaller, you know, smaller houses, smaller mountains. They're beautiful, beautiful places on the East Coast. But I love this sense of openness out West. How did you end up in Prescott? I decided to leave Santa Fe. A friend of mine had moved here and it's a beautiful area. I don't really want to get into all the reasons for leaving Santa Fe right now. Even though I loved it, it wasn't a place I could live. And so I came to Prescott thinking I'll give it a try. I've been here a little over a year now. And it's really a beautiful community. They have, I know they have one good radio station at least. (laughs) (laughs) Because that drive from, I think I told you that we lived in Santa Fe for about a dozen years, right? And there's that drive from Phoenix, if you're going north toward to Flagstaff and then Sedona. over. Yeah, toward yeah, yeah. Flagstaff and then back. Or if you want to stop in Sedona, whatever. But there's there's a whole stretch where there's kind of nothing. And if you're tooling around on the radio, there's one <laughs> station. And I had thought it was pronounced Prescott. Oh, no. Prescott. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Prescott. It's like ne- ne- Nevada is not Nevada. You don't say that. It's Nevada. You know, and, and it's always interesting when you hear these commentators on TV or whatever mispronounce these things. It's true. It's very funny. Do you want to talk about the five steps to finding a life of greater authenticity, value, and meaning? How did you come to this point? Is it like a natural distillation or was it born of the podcast? All oh, those podcasts. people? Yeah, actually, these are common traits that I found in the podcast among all these people. With that 30,000-foot view, I have such a unique perspective on all these stories. And one of the things I found was that everybody, when they hit a bump in the road, was able to pivot their perspective. They were able to see their situation in a different way. I mean, story after story. And I think a lot of that goes to issues of identity, being willing to unwind your identity, and to really decide who you are. That goes to authenticity, which is a second piece of that. And I think that every one of my guests ultimately found themselves in a quest for authenticity, where something in their life really wasn't working. And they had to find, they had to dig deep to find out what their strengths and their values were to move forward. You know, part of that is being willing to let go of what's not serving you anymore and to choose a new path forward. And you do have choice. And that's something that I think many of us don't realize. We're formed by a society that tells us how we should dress, what schools we should go to, what our career progression should be, you know, name your set of issues that go into identity, and how many of them are really real. And I think for a lot of my guests, when they hit a bump in the road, they really started to peel away these layers of inauthenticity to really pursue who they are. The mind game is the fourth part of that. I think that is probably one of the most important. I'm a big believer in meditation and meditation doesn't have to be going to Tahiti and sitting cross-legged and not talking for two weeks. I mean, you can find meditation everywhere in your life. You can find silence through sound. Some people use sound to get into a meditative state. You might find it walking in nature. There are lots of ways to, to pursue this, but I think the mind game is important because when you learn to quiet your mind, now you can actually review and you can watch your thoughts. You become conscious of your thoughts. And when you become conscious of them, now you have an opportunity to choose what your thoughts are. 
it, your thoughts may not be, you know, the neurotic part of your brain rattling on about this or that, you know, is that really what you want to choose? You have a choice. And I think that as you start this pattern of observation, you have an opportunity to reflect, to become more conscious. And ultimately with meditation, one of the reasons meditation is so powerful and this mind game matters so much is your frame of mind really sets your life. And meditation is experiential. The way I try to explain meditation to people is imagine you've never had chocolate, okay? And you go do some research and you find, oh my God, there are all these different types of chocolate. There's milk chocolate, there's dark chocolate, there's white chocolate, there's nuts, there's no nuts. There's, there's just many types and qualities of chocolate. But with all this knowledge, you don't have a clue what chocolate's about, do you really? Nope. <laughs> then you eat it. Then you eat that piece of chocolate. Oh, new world opens up, right? Well, meditation is experiential, just like chocolate. You have these experiences of deep peace. And all of a sudden, that's a reality for you. It's experiential. And the more you do it, the more it becomes a part of you. And you start to bring that into your everyday life. So that's why I think the mind game is so important until you start paying attention to your mind, what it's saying, and deciding to make conscious choices, you're, you're going to be chasing your tail in, in your own life. And it's going to be harder and harder to get out of that routine, that safety net that you've created for yourself. And maybe you don't want to get out. A lot of people don't. But I think that authentic living really lies in dealing with some discomfort and growth. And then the last part of that is uniqueness, finding your own uniqueness. We are all different. That's really cool. We're all unique. I love that. And I think what's really important is to find what resonates with you and what is unique with you and let that out into the world. I think that is a path that ultimately we all want to be on. You mentioned in finding your unique purpose, you mentioned Joseph Campbell and his belief that we're seeking the experience, right? I love yes. Joseph Campbell. I think he's so wise. And I don't have the quote off the top of my head right now, but he essentially said that what we're really seeking is the experience of being alive. And he's talking about that experiential piece of life. And you don't get that in your day-to-day -day rut. You got to step out of it and you have to be present. And I think that experience of being alive is exhilarating. And it comes from presence, attention, mindfulness, all those sorts of very ancient practices and traits that are meaningful in today's life. Would you say that meditation is one way into that experience of being alive? Absolutely. Yeah, I haven't meditated since I was a teenager. <laughs> but I know people that do, and most people I know who do had someone teach them how to do it. You mentioned a book, Eight. Yeah, there's a, yeah Eight Minute Meditation. When I got into meditation, I got into transcendental meditation. And I learned that from somebody who had studied with the Maharishi. But there's a book, Eight Minute Meditation by Victor Devich. It's a brilliant book, skinny little paperback, available on Amazon. The reason I like this book is he takes you through a different type of meditation every week. And so every week you're having a new and different experience with meditation. And he asks you for eight minutes a day. That's all. 
So what you're doing is you're experiencing, as you go through his practice, you're experiencing all these different types of meditation to see what might resonate with you, and you're building a new habit. The end of the period, you have a new habit. What do you want to plug in there? And I think that's a brilliant way to approach something like meditation. Again, it's baby steps, small steps towards a a new habit or practice. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. You say bringing fresh energy into your life is one way of navigating the bumps, right? Absolutely. And for people that want that fresh energy, I don't think everybody knows necessarily how to change their perspective, especially if they have children, have a job or have certain kinds of commitments in their lives to family in particular. But it sounds to me like one of the things you're saying, it's kind of like the chocolate or the introducing one new food or eight minutes a day, right? Is that one way to bring the fresh energy in or are there other ways? I think particularly for women, they are always taking care of everybody else and they're running themselves ragged between work and kids and everything else. And there's often just not any me time in there. And every soul needs me time. And I think that if you could carve out that little bit of time for yourself, whether it's in meditation or walking or whatever, carve it out for you and make it a priority. That alone will start you on a path with a little more energy, a little more inner reflection. And chances are, if you're that overwhelmed in life, and most people are, you need that inner reflection to really think about where you're heading next. And none of these things happen fast. They do not happen in a week or two or even a year. A lot of these things take years to unfold. So I think setting the the stage with good self-care, good mental self-care, which I think of is meditation as being a part of that, but it might be a sport. It might be, you know, going for a walk every day for yourself, whatever it is, you know, eating well. I, I think that carving out room in your life for you as a priority is really important. And I think from that, you will find the energy to take new and different directions if that's what you choose to do. But most people won't. Most people will not choose it. Is it because we're just, it's too easy to sit in our ruts? Yes, it's far too comfortable. And the other aspect of it is, and I have to attribute this to Eric Weinmayer, who was a guest on my show. He points out that the vast group of people in the middle who he calls campers, he's a mountain climber, and he calls them campers. And he points out that they may just be beaten down by life and they don't want to stick their head out of the foxhole anymore. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Self-reflection and all the possible changes that go with that can be pretty terrifying. Right. I listened to that interview. That was pretty amazing. Yeah, isn't it? Three kinds of people. Is that how he identifies them? He divides the world into three groups of people, and these groups are fluid. We can all move between all the groups, and we all have, and we all will. The first group are quitters, kind of self-evident. The vast majority of people are campers. They do not want to get out of their comfort zone. And I saw this in the cancer community as well. People would go through you know, an existential situation like cancer, and they just want to go back to their old world. Things couldn't change. And then after the campers come the climbers. And those are a very small group of people who perpetually seek greater visions, if you will, in life and will push themselves. And climbers can be campers. You know, you're not in any category all the time. But I think that that desire for most people to be in that camper category is really a shame because they're not pursuing or they're not allowing themselves to pursue 
what really makes their heart sing. And it doesn't mean you have to quit your job or anything like that. You can do this again in incremental ways, be curious, explore, because life goes through stages and you want to be setting the groundwork for the next stage. Uh, I think a lot of women, when they hit their early 40s, their kids are now a little bit older. They've been running around at soccer games and school this and that, and they've been working and they have a spouse. And what about them? And all of a sudden they're hitting a point of what about me, you know, and they there's how do you even handle it? And I think the easy way to handle it is to not take any risks, let everything go on, keep your job, et cetera. But a lot of people come to a point or some people come to a point where they just have to change. And I think that's really where the fun is. It's not easy, but it's very, very interesting. What role does money play in this? I think that money provides you a safety net. And so that's attractive, but it's not limitless for most people. So you have to be thoughtful about, you know, where you're going to spend money or not. But I think that it definitely provides you a bit of a safety net. However, there are so many remarkable people who grow up in really awful circumstances and they find a way to create an amazing life. So I don't think money is a barrier. I think it really comes from within. And I think that people need to dream big. Is that about the scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset? Oh, I, I think so. And I also, I mean, why not dream big? You have nothing to lose, really. And you'll probably propel yourself farther than you would have if you'd set these really smaller, tinier goals. I think it's an interesting world. And I think you have to kind of ask yourself, what do I want to do in it? And that can change over time. It's not static. When we first started talking, you started telling me what's on your horizon, what's coming mm -hmm. next. The book series is in process. Obviously, the podcast keeps going. But one of the things that I, I think Bump essentially is about life wisdom. And as a result, I'm starting to do some different things. I just had Gary Hensel and another guest on my podcast where we talked about his books that are just a compendium of amazing wisdom. And we called it The Spiritual Warrior. And that's up on YouTube. That was really fun to do. So I've decided I'm going to do The Way of Wisdom as a sort of a sub-series, if you will. And the next one's going to be Flying Stories. I'm getting some pilots together. and We're all going to tell our hairy, fun stories. And I think we'll call that Flight Wisdom or Flight Lessons or something like that just because it's fun. And I think that there's so much wisdom in every piece of life. And if you can get together with some like-minded people here and there, you can really come up with some fun stories that I hope resonate with people. That sounds wonderful. The way of wisdom. Yeah. So this will be podcast series. Yeah, it's actually, it's started. Gary and Deborah's episode is up on YouTube. It's also out as a podcast. It's on the website and it's being pushed through social media. And I'll do the same with all the others. That's great. I think that as we hear these stories, we can relate to them. And when we relate to them, we can take that bit of wisdom and try to make it our own. And that really expedites our own evolution and our own journey. And I think we need to listen to each other. Well, you sure do a great job with that and bumping the road. I, it's just a terrific podcast. So many interesting guests and people who have explored their own, pushed their own boundaries in so many different ways. My, uh, my guests are amazing. I am so grateful. I get to have meaningful conversations every week. My guests, I can't say enough about them. I'm just in awe of them. 
Is there anything else you want to say that I didn't ask you? Oh, there's a ton of stuff I didn't ask you about. I know. Um, well, come on over to the website, bumpintheroad.us. It's the best starting point. We're on all major podcast platforms, YouTube, wherever you like to listen, that's where we are. And explore the website because there's a lot there. There are pictures and videos and things that don't show up elsewhere. And it's a fun way to kind of browse and think about other people's stories. And our own next adventures. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Pat. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Likewise. Thank you you very much. I really appreciate the chance to be here. Thank you for listening. I'm Christy Cassidy, your host. We'll be back next time with more stories of travel, relocation, and life transitions on Moving Along. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.